So I have always had questions about my faith, about religion, about God, definitely about the Bible. Even as a young Protestant evangelical at seven years old, questions that seemed bigger than me. But my faith was always just a little bit bigger than those questions. Even in my adolescent years and into my early and mid-twenties, I had these deep, troubling questions about God, but it always seemed like my faith was just a bit bigger than these questions. Even at times, if it was just barely bigger, it was still bigger. And that was because I couldn't articulate what those questions were. I didn't have the knowledge base or the words or the vocabulary or even the confidence to ask the questions that my soul wished so badly to ask because of the density and the depth of my faith and the vocabulary that was readily at hand. There wasn't a question that I could ask that couldn't be answered with thick, rehearsed biblical constructs. And it wasn't until my late 20s when everything had changed for me. I went to Michigan State University and fell in love with the sciences. It had always been in my soul and now it had began to take shape. I got a degree in environmental geoscience and loved that so much that I got a degree, a second degree in chemistry. This knowledge, which became so much more to me, finally gave me the dialect to begin to ask questions that my soul had always been asking. Now I had the ability to articulate the deepest dissonances that lived within me, and my faith came crashing down. Dogmatic circle reasoning no longer carried any weight in my ideology, and the system no longer worked church became absolutely pointless to me. Now, my whole life, I was raised to believe that science is trying to prove that God doesn't exist, that religion is for the weak-minded mouth breathers. But now, I realize that science is simply the pursuit of an understanding of this world around us and this immense universe that we live in. This knowledge that I received, this study of the world that I immersed myself into is not drawing me away from the God that I thought I used to know. But instead I realize this has been a long-standing invitation for me to understand the complexities and the densities of everything around us, everything and all that we call life. And the more that I learn about this creation, the more I realize it simply reflects the creator. So now I begin to rebuild. Hey, welcome to the Mark Explains podcast. Uh, This is a podcast where we talk about life and science and faith and love and pain and the earth and the sun and all of the things that encompass the lived experience that we call life. And my name is Mark. I am your host. Thank you so much for joining me uh, today as we kind of go through this journey of the unraveling of everything that I've known in my entire life. This past year, I've had all of these things kind of floating around in my brain, not really know what to do with them. And I've been told on numerous occasions on my life that I'm decent at explaining things. 
things that are a little more complex to understand. So here I am. I'm going to explain things to you that might seem a little complex in nature, or maybe they're a little tough to digest. And that's what we do here. We are all in this thing called life together. There is no separation between you and me. We are human. We are loved. And that is what we are doing here. We are sharing in this space together. And that is all I want to do in my life, that there is room at my table for everyone. And so I want to invite you all into my brain for a little while and into my life as I kind of work through all of these issues and all of these problems and all of these details in my life that really have kind of taken me over over the past few years, but not so much anymore because now I'm realizing that I'm not alone in these things. And it's also okay to ask questions, the deep rooted questions. And we also are going to kind of tackle the science behind a lot of all of this beauty that we see around us in this universe, uh, in our lives, in our brains, in our bodies, and on this earth, simply because I am a man of science and I am also a man of faith. So let's just sit back and enjoy this journey together. This first episode, we talked to a good friend of mine. His name is Danny Prada. He is a pastor of Heartway Church down in South Florida. And what a beautiful person this is. I think that you are going to realize immediately that the entire epitome of his rhetoric, of his life, of his work is love. Everything he does is love. And that just inspires me on such a deep level. Now, if you're not a person of faith, uh, stick with this episode. I think you're going to find that this is really refreshing. And if maybe if these, maybe if you are a person of faith and you're struggling a lot with uh, some of the things that you've believed your whole life, then this is definitely an episode for you. I want you to sit back and enjoy it. We're going to get into some science uh, in the next few episodes, but uh, until then, enjoy this first podcast with my good friend, Danny Prada, uh, and welcome to the Mark Explains podcast. Oh, of course. Um, and uh, before we really get into it, I just wanted to talk a little bit about who I am and what my story is and why this is important, why these questions that we are asking are important, because they are. Um, I was raised uh, evangelical in a uh, Pentecostal church, Assemblies of God. Uh, we were rolling babies down the aisle and swinging from the chandeliers and speaking in tongues every weekend, and <laughs> as per the norm. And uh, I had a lot of questions when I was younger. Uh, these questions were, uh, they always bothered me. Like, uh, I don't know if you had this, Danny, um, but like I had a question about like dinosaurs when I was young. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I remember just I remember thinking like I feel like dinosaurs were a a big deal. Uh, I feel like <laughs> they should have been in the Bible. Of some, I mean, these things were huge. Let's just start there. These these animals roaming the earth a while back were the size of buses, if not bigger. And there's no mention of them in the Bible. And I remember going to Sunday school one morning and having that question and what the the Sunday school pastor told me, and I was pretty young at the time, I want to say I was like seven or eight, and what he told me very clearly was that, well, Satan put these, uh, these dinosaur bones in the ground to test our faith. And that's kind of the, been the, the epitome of my entire Christian ideology, my entire faith-based religion was this idea that the Bible is true because the Bible says it's true type of reasoning. 
And it wasn't until a little bit later that everything began, uh, like my, my questions got a little deeper, but so did my faith. And my faith was always just a little deeper than the questions that I had. Um, I was always able to reconcile the questions simply because the God that I knew and the God that I had was always just a little bit bigger and a little bit deeper than the questions that I had that ran along with it. And there came a point where the question was too big. The question was just too heavy. And I remember it very clearly. But before we get to that question, uh, Danny, why don't you tell us a little bit about your your childhood, your upbringing, and, and kind of what got you to this point where you are now? Yeah, so, I mean, I do have somewhat of a similar story. I grew up in a conservative evangelical home, and I'm grateful for my upbringing. I had parents who were wonderful Christians, and I wasn't necessarily brought up in any sort of extremes. It was just I was a part of a a paradigm that now uh, doesn't necessarily work for me anymore. But that back then, it gave me structure, and it gave me a strong foundation. And so I was a part of a Southern Baptist church most of my life. Uh, when I was about 18 is when I really started taking my faith seriously. Uh, prior to then, I, I was just kind of going to church to go to church. Uh, it was just the thing our family did. Hmm. But uh, at that time, when I was a freshman in college, I, I did have a, um, uh, a radical experience that ended up uh, changing the direction of my life forever. And so uh, once that happened, I naturally plugged into the church I grew up in, this uh, this Southern Baptist church, which at that time was undergoing some transition with a new pastor, and they became more of like a seeker-sensitive kind of a church. Uh, it ended up becoming a mega church, one of the fastest-growing churches in America. And so I eventually got on staff there. I was ordained as a pastor at the age of 21. During that time, I also was going to uh, Palm Beach Atlantic University. I got my Bachelor of Arts in Ministry Leadership. And during that time, I got connected with some guys, uh, friends of mine who were like super staunch Calvinists. And that was also a period of time when the young, restless, and reform movement was picking up traction. And so I hopped onto that trend. And after my bachelor degree- So you became a Calvinist then? Oh, yeah. I was like the best Calvinist. Like five-point Calvinism to the the T. Yes. God chose me and not you. (laughs) (laughs) For those of you who don't know, Google Tulip or five-point Calvinism, and uh, it'll be interesting. It'll be an interesting Google search. Yeah, so you know that's that's one way of, of framing Christian theology, and uh, uh, that's what I was really uh, consumed with in those earlier years. And so after I graduated my, with my bachelor's, I wanted to get an education that would kind of root and ground me in that theological system. And so I went to Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where I got my uh, Master of Divinity. And that's when I was really entrenched in this kind of ideology. I didn't know this back then, but I was being taught by many people who would be uh, considered fundamentalist. Mm. Uh, I guess the street way of interpreting what that means is people who are really, really dogmatic about their beliefs and like kind of angry about it. Mm. So they're, they're somewhat combative. My and- way is the right way. Yeah, and so that that combativeness and aggressiveness actually is what got me going on a journey towards a different kind of Christianity because just as a human being, I'm not very much uh, aggressive. I don't like conflict, and I was 
I was being exposed to a kind of Christianity that was just that. It was always a problem with other people, and we were the ones that were right, and all, all other Christians were wrong. And that was that was an issue for me because half my family's charismatic, the other half is Roman Catholic, and when my heroes were basically saying really bad things about both of those streams of the Christian faith. It just became a, a really big problem for me. And so little by little from there, uh, and I've mentioned this to folks before, but even when I 100% agreed with what these people believed, I had a problem with how they held their beliefs. That's exactly where I was too. And, and, and to think that for 200 years maybe that this Protestant religion that I have, that's about, about how long it's been. This is a... This, uh, religion that I carry or I used to carry is very inf- is very in its infancy compared to some religions but I found the one the one path to God and it's yeah. mine and it's only mine and everyone else on the face of this earth is wrong <laughs> yeah. and, and again it was just it was very weird to me especially because like there were other Christians that in my book were just completely and totally wrong and Think about it. If you can't even get along with other Christians, how are you supposed to get along with the Muslim or the Jew or the atheist? I, I didn't. I didn't have those relationships, you know. So that that just set me on a whole new trajectory where I started to begin reading a lot more uh, widely and broadly outside of my particular tribe. And as I started doing that, that is when things really – uh, began to crumble. Uh, a lot of people call this process that I'm talking about and that, and that you are going to be exploring on this podcast, the process of deconstruction. Mm-hmm. The idea is we all begin with a particular system, a particular form of thought uh, that we're presented with that seems to be very clear, black and white. This is how it is. But then we kind of go through some sort of cognitive dissonance when we are approached with and uh, and exposed to information that uh, maybe undermines what we always thought to be true, and that and that process is is what deconstruction is. And so mm. my deconstruction process began because. I wanted to have more of an ecumenical spirit. I wanted to have more of a generous orthodoxy, a generous approach towards other Christians who believe differently than I did. But then when I actually started listening to these other voices and hearing what they had to say, a lot of what they said was making sense and it completely contradicted everything I was taught. (laughs) And, uh, And little by little, my Christianity as a whole started to unravel because back then in that system that I grew up in, I wasn't taught how to make a distinction between what I believe about God and God. For me, I equated my ideas about God with God. Mm. So when my ideas about God began to shatter, well, God began to shatter a little bit for me too. And that was really, really difficult. Well, it's really interesting to uh, you talk about your uh, your faith process began to fall apart because your belief began to fall apart, and that's that's actually can be seen in scientific evidence that your your belief, your identity, is found uh, in your thalamus. And your thalamus, if you want to go uh, neurological, it's kind of at the center of your brain. It's a very primitive part of your brain and who you are. It's kind of like the, the size of a walnut in the center of your brain, 
and thoughts are generated at the top of your brain stem and they travel upwards and outwards through your thalamus. But your thalamus is where all of your identity is held. So who you believe you are as a person, all of the the beliefs and religions that you hold, and then also who you think God is, is kept in your thalamus. So when you generate a thought, it goes through your identity before it reaches your neocortex, before you can analyze it as a human. It has to first filter through the lens of your identity. And so when your identity begins to crumble, you begin to relapse, you begin to kind of default into the more primitive parts of your brain. And a lot of times that's anger and fear, because those two reactions live at the base of your brain and your amygdala. So you're talking about your construct falling apart and in in your God that you, who you held as a as a religion as this box that you ha- that you built in your brain began to fall apart and then you begin to ask questions like well this isn't the God that I know what do I do and that was the big part for me as I turned to fear and anger I actually got mad at my parents um, yeah. for teaching me things that I found out later were just not true at all. And so I really like this process that you're talking about, this uh, this deconstruction. You know what it was for me? I, I started making love absolutely central to everything I thought about life and God. Because even though I was losing a whole bunch of other stuff, the one thing that I knew that I knew that I knew to be true was love. And so I said, I'm going to make <laughs> love the absolute center of, of, of my conception of God and my conception of what human life is going to be all about. And when I started to do that, I began to realize how unloving most of my uh, beliefs up to that point were. Mm. And so I would listen to certain uh, people, maybe on the more progressive end of the Christian spectrum, speak about God in such a way that was, my goodness, it was so inclusive, so embracing, mm. so wide, so broad. I mean, it, it, everybody was in, nobody was out. They weren't mm. playing the game of who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. They weren't interested in those things. And they had such a care for the poor and the sick and the and the marginalized and the, and the other, the mm. one who was unlike us and even believed different than us. And as I would listen to these people talk so openly and freely, it, it that created tension because I had certain Bible verses that I interpreted in a certain way that wouldn't let me say those things. And so inside of me, I was like, I want to talk like that. I want to be like that. But I have so many stumbling blocks in the way of of me being that way. And Mm. so that's when I began to really challenge a lot of my beliefs and a lot of my ideologies. And really a lot of that began, honestly, with heaven and hell stuff. Uh, it's, 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 uh, it's one thing to say God is love, but it's another thing, um, to, 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 to construct a system that supports that claim and, and, and the system that most Christians have the view that they have about how this whole thing is going to wrap up, doesn't really paint God to be the most loving person. And so I like to say a lot of Christians are more loving than their God is. Mm. True. So I know a lot of Christians who are better than their beliefs are. Mm. The scriptures say God's anger endures for a moment, but his love endures forever. Mm. Yet many of our frameworks about heaven and hell and how this whole thing is going to end up, it, they, they portray the complete opposite of that truth. For mm. us, it's like, hey, God loves you 
uh, up to a certain point, if you die without repenting and believing in Jesus, you know, then God's anger will endure forever. Hmm. That's how we do it. We've completely flipped what the heart of this whole thing is all about. And and when I started recognizing that, my goodness, that that challenged that challenged me big time. But but my eschatology was one of those areas where. I had to reformulate that. It was just impossible for me to conceive of of how a good and loving and just God could uh, um, punish a human being in literal flames for all of eternity uh, for practicing the wrong religion. Let's talk about the idea, and this is this is one of my crippling questions that I had. Um, so for those of you uh, who don't know who I am, I used to be a, um, a worship leader for a long time, for many, many years. Actually, that's part of how me and Danny know each other. And uh, I can remember back in 2005, I went to a Bible school called Fort Myers Master's Commission. And in my second year, I can remember, I went to Walmart in order to purchase some pasta and some sauce and cheese and stuff in order to make some an awesome dinner. I wanted to like bless my roommates. That's I think what I was going for. But I needed to do it cheaply because I also was broke AF. And so I went to Walmart and found the pasta, but I couldn't find the sauce I wanted. I wanted the prego with the mushrooms and the onions, the chunky stuff. It was so good. Oh, so good. Still love it, by the way. Just a little FYI. Great job, Prego, for crushing it. And I couldn't find it. I was walking up and down the sauce aisle, and I just could not find the sauce. And I was so frustrated. And I actually began to get angry, which kind of is a little little indicative of who I was uh, just underneath the surface at the time. We're not going to go there, though. Regardless, I stopped right there, and and I was like, I need to pray. I have to pray because I pray about everything. And so I started to pray, and I was like, dear Jesus, baby Jesus, nine pound, eight ounce baby Jesus, please, I need this spaghetti sauce because this is the number one need in my life right now. Please help me find it. And I opened my eyes, and I swear to God it was right in front of my face. Holy Jesus, he turned water into spaghetti sauce right in front of my face. I swear to God, it was amazing. It was the most wonderful thing. And this... This pseudorology, this uh, this understanding of who God was, that's what fit at the time that God was an interventionist God. He intervened when I needed him to. And then later on in life, when I was beginning to question everything and travel the world and meet people of different cultures and contexts and realizing that there are people that literally will never hear the gospel of Christ ever. And I mean, there's zero chance. I mean, I live in a scientific world, so zero doesn't exist. But literally, these people will never hear of Christ. And so you get this, let's say, a girl who's born in rural India. And at the age of seven, she is kidnapped and sold into the sex trade. And for years and years, she's brutally raped and beaten and in captivity and bondage for years and years. And at the age of 14, which is a couple of years older Then the age of accountability, which we understand to be around 12 years old, uh, which isn't even found in the Bible, but regardless, she's murdered. She's murdered at the age of 14. And so this girl goes from a life of pain and 
brutality and endless evil and then transitions into a life where she goes to what I used to believe she would go to hell because she didn't accept Christ in her heart. And this was one of the breaking, crippling questions that I had. This was one of the questions that began to get, uh, began to become bigger than the God that I held in my belief system was this question of how can God, if he is a loving God, knowingly create this beautiful soul in order to just be brutally raped and beaten for years and years just to be murdered and then go to hell to where she's punished in the lake of fire for all of eternity because it's your will? This this is the question that began my entire deconstruction. For me, um, something that was really just an eye opener was when I began to learn and realize that hell, at least the way that we think about it, was not even a concern or thought in Jesus's mind. Now, I know when I say that, obviously, a bunch of us who grew up in church are like, wait a second, but there's a lot of hell talk in the Gospels. There is a uh, theologian by the name of N.T. Wright, and I mention him because he's the most popular one and easily accessible one, but many others have, have done great work along you know, those lines. But uh, he talks about the fact that uh, when Jesus spoke of what we call hell, the literal word there is the word Gehenna, and Gehenna was an actual garbage dump outside of uh, the walls of Jerusalem, where uh, in the Old Testament they would do child sacrifices there to other gods. And um, during the time of Jesus in that first century world, it was just the, the, the city dump. They would throw their garbage there and there was a fire that was constantly burning and there was a gnashing of teeth when the dogs who were going there to find some uh, food in their hunger would growl at each other to, and, and, and fight over the pieces that were there. And so when uh, Jesus talked about Gehenna, he was talking about an actual place that people knew. And what uh, N.T. Wright and many other theologians have said is that, well, uh, Jesus, in talking about these things, was actually warning the, the people of Israel what would happen to them as a nation if they rose up in violent uh, resistance against the Roman Empire, uh, which was oppressing them. Remember, they were waiting for a Messiah to come who would lead them in victory over battle uh, against their oppressors. But Jesus comes and he says, hey, no, uh, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, pray for those who persecute you. And then he lays his life down for the sake of, of showing the power that love has to overcome all forms of hatred and oppression. And so uh, Jesus, in warning about hell, is warning people of uh, something that would actually happen to uh, their 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 nation if they were to choose the way of the sword in, instead of the way of peace. So Jesus never spoke of a literal hell then? He did not speak of what we conceive to be hell in the Gospels. The, like the a place only... beneath us uh, made of actual fire. He never spoke of that. 
Right. So many uh, scholars would argue that. And, and what they say Jesus was pointing to was, was something that actually happened in A.D. 70. Uh, the, 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 uh, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and the Roman soldiers came in and totally obliterated uh, the Jewish people. And they took the dead bodies of these Jewish people. They threw them over the city wall into uh, Gehenna. And um, that was a result of, of, of uh, certain attempts to uh, overcome uh, the empire through, through violence, which Jesus warned about. And so many people say uh, what Jesus was, was warning these people about uh, uh, is something that occurred for them today. So when you conceive of, 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 of Jesus' talk about hell in this way, now all of a sudden hell isn't so much about, hey, what's going to happen after you die? This is about the kind of hells that we create in this life right here, right now, when we don't follow the path mm. of self-love. And that makes so much sense because I can literally name people that I know that are living in a real hell yeah. right, right now. You know, the other part about it, too, is um, there is a mention uh, in the story of the rich man and Lazarus where Jesus speaks of, of Hades. Uh, but even still, that Hades is a, is a Greek mythological concept. You know, very few people would, would uh, take something like that absolutely literally today. And even if you, if you think about the way that ancient people conceived of the universe, for them, you know, the earth was flat. There was a dome that surrounded the earth, and a, and the earth was held up by pillars. And underneath the earth, there were there was a place called um, uh, Hades. And then above the dome, over the sky, there was there was a place called heaven. So if you were to take these concepts uh, for what they were back in those days, listen, we don't we don't believe that literally. Like we've, been, <laughs> we've been up there, and we know. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's not heaven isn't right above the atmosphere here. Like, yeah, just, I, so, I believe the the Starcraft Voyager uh, is still traveling um, away from uh, planet Earth right now and has exited our solar system uh, just a few years back. And I'm pretty sure it hasn't hit a firmament as we know it. <laughs> exactly. So if you ever wonder, like, why do people say hell is down? We think down and heaven up because that's literally what ancient people believed back then about the way the world was structured. It was so their best already, version of reality. Yeah. So already based on that, like we, we, we have to uh, see uh, these for the symbols and metaphors that they are. Mm. And, and I do believe that they point to, to realities. But, um, but first and foremost, before having to do with anything in the life to come, it has a lot to do with the kind of life we're creating for ourselves now. And, uh, and I think if we started taking that more seriously, our world would, would probably be a better place. You've heard it said, you know, some people are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. Mm. So, so that's, a big, that's a big problem that we come across. That know? was my entire life. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and so you know that 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 piece is big. Understanding that Jesus's emphasis really wasn't like the next life, but this life being radically transformed. That's why his prayer was, "May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven." Um, and the other part about it too is, this blew me away. Did you know that the earliest Christians, like I'm talking about, the ones who right after the apostles, like these, these men learned from the apostles. Okay. And mm -hmm. they gave us what we now consider to be orthodoxy in the church. The, one of the major views about life after death, this was probably the most popular view about life after death in the early church was a view called universalism, which was the idea that in the end, 
all people would be reconciled back to God. And so uh, for many people all throughout church history, and especially when this was extremely popular in those first uh, few centuries of church history, hell, quote unquote, was considered to be uh, uh, restorative in its intent, meaning the punishments of God were ultimately for the purpose of bringing about healing and transformation and mm. restoration. And these people believed in this idea so much that they said in the end, all people would ultimately be saved. And so we've got this really weird thing now where we say, you know, once you die, that's it. All opportunities are gone for you to be able to be reconciled to God. You messed it up in those 80 years. But then you have a whole bunch of problems with like the ones that you mentioned about this young girl and the person who lives in Africa and never got the opportunity to hear the gospel. When in reality, listen, it's always been a thing in the church. Uh, to say that even beyond death, God can extend the opportunity for people to to be restored back back mm. to him. And that even though people may choose to reject the love of God, God will never stop extending his love towards mm. them. And so that's really so good. Many- yeah. I know Martin Luther, actually, he's, he also believed in the, he lived in the late 1400s, early 1500s, for those of you who don't know who he is. He also believed that once you died, God gave you an infinite amount of time and an infinite amount of chances in order to turn your heart towards him. So this isn't even a new idea. You see, and that's the thing. Like Some people think that I'm like such a radical, controversial dude with the things that I say. No, it's not that I'm radical. It's just that you I mean, I don't want to be mean. You're just unlearned. You don't, you, uh, because this kind of, there are some things I won't lie to you. Okay. That I have moved beyond Christian tradition, but there are many other areas, for example, and how I conceive of this whole thing, wrapping up heaven and hell conversation where I'm just going right back to the heart of our very tradition. This isn't something new. The thing is, people don't know that there are options. And so when you have people like you and I who start questioning things and we start having some intellectual stumbling blocks, well, if we're told that being a Christian means believing this long list of doctrines, then when those doctrines stop working for us, guess what? Christianity is going to stop working for us and we're going to feel like we have to go. But if people knew there's room in the tradition, there's always been many ways of seeing every single important issue that you could possibly think of. Now that allows people the intellectual freedom to to question and to doubt and to reformulate their views in a way that makes more sense to them in the modern world. And so listen, I have a bookshelf filled with books on every topic you can think of. And they're called three views, four views, five views on hell, the divinity of Christ, uh, tithing, you know, I mean, everything that you could possibly imagine. There are different ways that Christians have approached these topics. And we should not be threatened by these different views. We should not get defensive when someone holds a different view. We should embrace these different views, be in conversation with these different views and grow as a result of the dialogue. So how do you reconcile that God is a loving God, knowing that he allows so many people to exist in brutality and painful worlds between being murdered and uh, brutally, savagely raped and all of that? But uh, how, like, how, do you, how, how do you reconcile that belief that um, like, why doesn't God intervene if he is a loving God? Yeah, um, what you're talking about there is... is um more formally called the problem of evil. 
And this is probably, I would argue, the, the greatest philosophical challenge that is presented to uh, Christian thinkers. And unfortunately, the answers that we've had to offer um, it, over the last you know, several centuries has created tons of atheists because it just doesn't really seem to make sense. I will say, like every other topic, there are a spectrum of, of beliefs and answers to this issue. Um, I want to begin maybe talking about how I approach this pastorally. Okay, pastorally, I think the best, uh, the best way to navigate this with people is to help them learn how to live within the tension that God is good and that God always and only does good and that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And on the other side, paradoxically, there is evil in this world, but it's not God doing it. And so I, I don't know. Uh, pastorally, I just try and help people move away from the why question to begin with, because most Christian answers to the why end up either justifying evil, trying to make evil sound like it's good, or making God sound really bad. Okay, with the answers that we give. So I try and help people just kind of learn how to live in the tension and in the mystery and not have to necessarily have an answer to the why question. Now, on the other hand, uh, I, I, the reason why I say that is because I don't think a lot of people can actually swallow the answer that I have to give, and uh, they don't need to. I think they can live comfortably in that tension many Christians have. What I don't like is when people say, like the system I came from, God ordains everything that happened. You know, good and bad, good or, you know, uh, evil or not, it all is coming from God. And so just deal with it because it's a part of God's plan. That for me is horrifying. Hmm. And, and when people present God like that, that sounds more like the devil to me. <laughs> the, other, the other view that is more popular and, and better nuanced but still very problematic is, well, God must have allowed it for a reason. Oh, the uh, God card. Oh, yeah, I know, roll my so, eyes every time I hear that. The God allowing it is a big issue because if we really say that God is love and God is, is, is good and God is all powerful, if God is able to do something about the horrible tragedies we face in our world, for him not to, because there's some sort of reason, I mean, absolutely goes against everything our conscience tells us to be right and good and noble and true. So uh, that's, that's the problem I have with the God allows, because if God can do something about this, but he's allowing the horrible murder, if he's allowing the Holocaust, if he's allowing the hurricane for a particular reason, um, man, it's very hard to think of God actually being the good God that we say um, he is. That was one of the biggest issues that I had during my deconstruction was that if God is a good God, like I believe that he is, then why isn't he doing good? This is one of the deepest problems I had with God that there is so much pain and so much brutality in this world that we live in that he at a snap of a finger could, could take care of it all, but he doesn't. And that wrecked me to my core. And I think of the girl from India who now is living in hell, burning for eternity. It makes Hitler 
kind of seem like a god because at least he killed them quickly. God is making them burn slowly for all of eternity. This does not seem like a good god. This seems like a sadistic god. Yeah, and that yeah, it that can be very nerve-wracking and very uh, very uh, difficult to to swallow. So I also uh, was deeply challenged by those questions, and I kind of stayed in the mystery lane for a while until that um, it just did not satisfy me. And uh, thankfully, I was introduced to an entire realm of theology called open and relational theology. Or process theology, which is really the, the 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 side of this that I was I was engaging with. But in process theology, God is seen as essentially loving, meaning God, the core of God's being, God in His nature. Before we say anything else about God, we must say that God is love. So, what does it mean for God to be love? According to process theologians, God and his love by necessity gives freedom and autonomy to all created things. And because God is essentially loving, they say God cannot withdraw or remove the freedom that God has given to all of creation, which means that the idea of God being all powerful is being radically rethought in this paradigm hmm. in light of God's love. So if there's any one of those three things that has to be tampered with, according to process theologians, okay, wait, if there's, how can we say God is all loving, you know, totally good and all powerful and there still be evil in the world? Like yeah. either God's not all loving and he's not all good or he's not all powerful. Also but he can't a question be all I had, yeah. If there's evil in the world. And so the way process theologians tackle this is by saying we need to rework what it means to say that God is, quote unquote, almighty or all powerful in light of this notion that God is uh, essentially loving. And so uh, if, again, God is essentially loving, he gives freedom to creation that he cannot withdraw. So God's power is not the power of control or coercion. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want. But instead, God's power is the power of influence and the power of love. So what I say is God is always doing everything in God's ability to bring about the best possible good in every given situation. God is always uh, influencing, or how process theologians like to say, God is always luring creation um, into uh, a better future. However, there are some things God cannot do, and something God cannot do is unilaterally uh, stop evil things from happening in this world. Hmm. Why do I like this? Even though that completely changes a whole lot of what you're going to think about God and prayer and how God relates to the world. But why I like this and why I think this endeavor is worth it is because now in this framework, you and I are empowered. You and I are actually the hands and feet of God in this world because everything God does, God does in cooperation with creation. And so if we don't partner with God to put a stop to evil, then evil will not be put to a stop. And so now instead of saying, oh, yeah, God will take care of it one day, we have to. Uh, stand up and say enough is enough and do everything in our power with God 
in his grace, you know, in partnership with the spirit to uh, make this world a better place and to bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. So mm-hmm. that's, that's, you know, and there are many people who can talk about this better than I do. I'm not by all means, you know, by any means an expert in this field. But uh, I recommend the work of Thomas Ord, who has a book called The Uncontrolling Love of God, where he really talks about this um, in, in a wonderful way. So just because I'm fairly certain that a lot of people listening to this podcast will probably wretch at the idea that there is, you are saying that God can't do everything. Yeah, but the way that, I mean, I might be able to put my old Pentecostal hat back on. It might be dusty and it won't fit anymore, but I could put it on for a second and say, God is all powerful and mm-hmm. he is all present and he is all knowing. So you're saying that he created a rock so big that he can't lift it? Again, and it would just be this circular argumentation with this hypothetical Pentecostal person because at that point I would simply say we still go back to square one. If God is who you are saying God is, then why isn't he doing what is the most loving thing to do? Mm. And unfortunately, many people will say, well, just because you don't know the reason doesn't mean there isn't one. Um, fine, if you're comfortable with that answer, I get it. I used to say that too. But but some of us are just so we're, we're too bothered by this inactivity. Yeah. You know the 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 issue is the issue is is what Thomas Ord calls selective miracles. Mm. Why is this person being spared from in that airplane crash? But in this airplane crash, everybody died. Yeah. Is it that this person with cancer got healed, but this person didn't? So again, there, what, what the process answer to this would be is, well, there are moments when uh, there is creaturely cooperation with God and miraculous things can happen. But when evil things happen, it's uh, because God can't do anything about it on his own. Hmm. Right. So, you know, that's, um, again, so what I recommend for people, again, putting my pastor hat back on is if you don't think too deeply about this stuff and you're not like a nerd like us, stay in the mystery category. I think that's safe. I think that's, that's the best way to, to do this for the regular lay person who just goes to church and, and y'all are thinking about this too much. But for those of you, who, <laughs> but for those of you who are considering atheism, because you don't know what to do with the problem of evil, I want you to hear what I think is the best Christian answer. Mm, so that's, and that's exactly where I stand. You know, a part of me, a very small part, be it, uh, but a part of me uh, wishes I kind of would have stayed in in that trance, in that uh, in in a sense, uh, you know, ideological ignorance, uh, where it all made sense, where the box worked, where it, you know the construct stayed together. But the freedom that I feel on this side of the equation, where things that didn't add up are now, I'm beginning to let those go and realizing that. That those constructs that held them together were not limiting the religion that I held, but they were they were limiting the God that I thought I knew. Yep. And to let that all go is to let the concepts go. And it's not like God is changing through this process. It's that my ideas and concepts and ideological uh, flaws that I had those are the things that are changing. God has yeah. never been anything but love. You, you hit it right there. You hit it right there. There's this wonderful 
uh, Christian mystic. And I mean, I wish we had time to talk about this because I have been deeply influenced by uh, the mystical stream of, of Christianity. Uh, there's a mystic by the name of Meister Eckhart, and he, he had this prayer where he said, I pray for God to rid me of God. <laughs> and what he meant by that is, God, smash all of my intellectual idols, smash all of my doctrinal systems that uh, claim to have a total grip on you when they really don't. Mm. What he's really saying is, God, rid me of all of the ideas I have about you and help me to recognize that my best formulations and my greatest uh, doctrinal systems fall far short from actually capturing who you are. And so what what you learn, and I'm, I'm sure you can vouch for this when you go through this journey, is that God is beyond all words. God is beyond all language. God is beyond all systems of thought. And when we're able to be okay with mystery at the heart of our existence, that is when we have really hit the essence of what faith is all about. Faith is not about certainty. Faith is not about having all of the answers. Faith is about trusting even when you don't have all of the answers. And so that is a place I think a lot of people need to move towards. If we're going to be able to uh, have healthy discussions about big theological issues like this one without like tearing each other apart in the process. If we think we know God, we are, we definitely don't. The moment you think you've got this whole thing figured out is when you expose that you truly do not. Hmm. So if the construct of hell and heaven don't exist like we initially thought they did, like I initially believed they did, I thought that heaven was a physical place and so was hell. Those are physical places. If, they, if those don't exist like we were raised to believe that they do, um, then what's the purpose in following Christ? I mean, if we're no longer trying to sell Jesus' life insurance policies for when we die if if the whole goal is not heaven when we die why jesus now yeah so well you know i'll start by saying number one just because i understand those terms and how they're used in the scripture as being symbolic and metaphorical in their nature doesn't mean I don't think they speak of uh, realities that all of us face both here in this life and in whatever it is we conceive of the life to come. So that's the the, the first thing that I'll say. Uh, the second thing that I'll say though is the reason why I, 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 I poke at the, the whole heaven-hell framework thing as it's been presented in most evangelical circles is because the way we conceive of heaven and what happens after you die is very different than the way the Bible does. For us, I mean, I, I, I was t always taught that, listen, this world, it's, it's, it's going to get burned up and the good Christians are going to be raptured up to the sky. And we're going to be taken to this other realm where we're going to dwell with God forever. So the whole thing was about escaping this world and going to that other world. Mm. But in the scriptures, heaven and the ultimate vision of how this is going to end is about 
heaven coming to earth. Mm. The whole thing ends. The whole thing ends in Revelation 21 with the new Jerusalem descending from heaven and God dwelling with us here and all things being made new. So when that becomes the way you understand things, you see N.T. Wright, the way he says it is, the Bible doesn't say a lot about life after death. What the Bible talks about is life after life after death. Hmm. So you'll have Paul say something like, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'd rather you know, depart from here and, and be with the Lord. Or Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise to the thief on the cross. Fine. But that's not where the story ends. The story ends with this world being renewed and transformed into the place God always intended for it to be. So when that becomes the mentality, now your your mindset is not, I just got to get as many souls as I can to pray this prayer so that they can leave here when they die. No. Now your concern is, how can I make disciples, people who have a deep centeredness and orientation towards God that leads to a life of love and justice and compassion and peacemaking in this world to help usher in the kingdom of God in the same way that Jesus did. Mm. You see, it's a totally different way of, of, of thinking about it. How you think about the end is going to affect how you live in the here and now. Mm. So the way I conceive of the future is going to affect how I act in the present. So if the mindset is this world being transformed, this world being changed, this is our home, you know, then uh, that's going to that's gonna change a lot about the way I live and I act in this world. So, so that's why I would say this whole thing is important because, uh, my goodness, how many children are dying of starvation? You know, how, how horribly are we treating uh, our environment? You know, how unjust are so many governments and political systems? How, how badly are black people being treated and people in the LGBTQ community being treated? And, and uh, how unfair are some women being treated? My goodness, mm. there are, we, it, it, why are we doing this? Because we want to see the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven. And so I'm going to do everything I can to teach people about the way and the truth and the life that I see embodied in Jesus so that our world can be a better place. I want people to be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. And I don't I don't need the threat of eternal conscious torment to to care enough to tell people about my faith and why I think the way of Jesus leads to human flourishing. Mm. Does that make sense? It does. A lot of people now ask me, as a scientist, I, uh, people ask me, well, how do you know God exists? How, like, how do you know um, there is a God? And I think of, uh, you know, I think of who I am as a person, but on a physical sense, let's just say, for example, uh, we are made of what scientists would call sponch, which is S-P-O-N-C-H, sulfur, phosphorus, nitrogen, oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, basically those six elements. Plenty of other uh, trace elements are obviously in your body, but those main six make up everything that you are as a person. And when I began, let's just say, for example, let's just take your brain of all organs in your body. Let's just take your brain and let, let's just begin to pull it apart and, uh, you know, cell by cell. Let's go down on a molecular level 
and down to cell by cell and start to pull those apart. And then you get to the molecules and you begin to pull those apart and you see hydrocarbons and you see hexane rings and you see all these beautiful, beautiful arrays of elements kind of tied together through interactions of energy. And you begin to pull those apart and you end up with a, a carbon molecule and a, a carbon, an element of carbon and an atom of hydrogen. And the question that I had was, if I pull my brain apart molecule by molecule, where do I find my pain or my memories? Or where do I find the love that I feel towards everyone else? Am I just this bag of elements, this, this bag of flesh and bones, or is there something more? And that's when I really realized that I am more than the sum of my parts, that there's another element in there that is not being accounted for. And that is what I call God. That is what I call energy or source or whatever you label that to be. And I put that in a bucket in my brain and I labeled it God as things I don't understand. I know there's more to the story. I know there's more going on, but I can't explain it. And therefore, I'm not going to rule it out. I'm not going to say God doesn't exist. I'm going to say there's more to the story than I've always believed. And that's what I hold in my God bucket. I love that. I love that. All right, Pastor Danny. Tell us about your church and where we can find your stuff and who you are and social media and all that jazz. Tell us everything. Yeah, man. So uh, Heartway Church, we are down here in South Florida. So if anybody ever wants to visit, you guys are invited to come. Guys even, and gals. even the heathens? Even the heathens. Oh. Please, you are, I need more of you in the church. I don't really like religious people, if I'm to be honest with you. <laughs> Um, everybody's welcome and when we say that we really mean it so Heartway Church and you can find us um, online at heartwaychurch.com Instagram Facebook Twitter at Heartway Church and we have a podcast so I don't really have like books and stuff yet I'm working on my doctorate and that's consuming all of my time so if you want more of my content you can listen to the weekly sermons that I share um, by searching for Heartway Church on iTunes or going to Heartway Church dot podbean.com awesome thank you brother all right